Two weeks ago, the youth Sunday school classes gathered for a combined session to prepare for last week's forum with City Council, Presen with City Council President Doug Shipman and Deputy Chief of Police Prisina Span. We reviewed the history of our neighborhood here at St. Luke's, how the construction of the interstate broke up a pre-existing community right over there, and the plans for reconnecting the neighborhood through a program called The Stitch. The youth also brought questions about their own lives, especially about gun violence and policing. I shared with them the statistic that gun death was now the leading cause of fatality among children under 18, surpassing motor vehicle accidents. It's a reality they live every day but it's a stark and troubling bit of data. When I shared it, there was a palpable heaviness that came over the room. Amidst such realities, we often want to do something. We need to do something. And there are a myriad of sensible things that we can do. But I had to admit to the youth that morning two weeks ago that the problem is so complex and so intractable, we don't know what to do. There is no simple solution. It was a hard moment, but it was also an honest moment, a clarifying moment. We find Peter in the gospel passage in an analogous place this morning, after he was interrupted by a cloud. <laughs> After he followed Jesus up the mountain, after Jesus' appearance was altered and his face shone like the sun, after Moses and Elijah showed up, Peter offered to do something. He offered to build each of the three great leaders a shelter. And while he was talking, the text says, while he was talking, I, I still can't really get over this, a bright cloud overshadowed him. Perhaps this might be what we call throwing some holy shade, I don't know. <laughs> but Peter's initial response to the sight of Israel's leaders, however, wasn't just something he pulled out of the thin air. In ancient times, if you had an experience where heaven revealed itself on earth, it was customary to respond by marking the occasion somehow, with a shrine or with an altar, or with founding a day of remembrance. Thus, Peter's response to institutionalize his religious experience by constructing the shelters could be seen as both culturally and religiously appropriate. Still, the literary construction of the transfiguration narrative in each of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, indicate that Peter didn't quite get it, even if he was hearing to both the cultural and religious norms of his day. While Peter's critique, well, Matthew's critique of Peter's response is somewhat subtle, Mark's gospel flatly announces that Peter made the offer to construct the shelters because he did not know what else to do. You don't have to get too far into the story to know that this text defies a tidy interpretation. 
Still, the accounts of the transfiguration haven't kept many scholars or obligated preachers from trying to make sense of them. Even the editors of the lectionary, those who arranged the selection of our scriptural text this morning, weigh in on this today. They juxtapose Matthew's account of Jesus' transfiguration with Moses' experience of God on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24. Their similarities are truly captivating. Gregory of Nyssa, so intrigued by the many stories of Moses' mountaintop meetings, and especially by how each, in their own way, used light, fire, cloud, storm, and shadow. And he grew to speak of these encounters as luminous darkness. He writes, often what is perceived to be contrary to religion is conceived of as darkness, and an escape from darkness comes about when one participates in the light. Gregory, however, pushes back on the tropes of darkness and light. He argued that the biblical text depicting Moses' mountaintop experience, and perhaps, and perhaps the texts of our own lives as well, might actually be calling seekers to leave behind what can be rightfully observed so that they might embrace a kind of seeing that consists in not seeing. The biblical writers in Exodus 20 indicate that when Moses ascended to the mountain, he approached the thick cloud of darkness where God was. The other of Jesus' famous mountaintop companions, of course, also had a significant mountaintop experience. At a low point in Elijah's ministry, as a prophet, when he was being hunted by the authorities and unsure as to whether he could carry on, Elijah fled to a cave in the mountainous wilderness. And there, he also meets God. Not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire that passed by, not by any of the signs by which Elijah had previously used to demonstrate God's power, but in the still, small voice, calling to him from the edge of the darkness. The same was true for Peter, James, and John. The voice that spoke after the great light turned to sudden darkness not only exposed the depth of their not knowing, but caused them to fall to the ground in terror. Peter tried to do something, to say something, but the cloud interrupted him. And it was there that Jesus came to the disciples, there that Jesus touched them, the voice of God, the still, small voice, says, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. God does not leave these disciples in their fear. God gives them something to do. Listen to Jesus. It wasn't a confident action plan. It wasn't a strategic vision. Sorry, Winnie. It wasn't the certainty of knowing, but it was an invitation to a vocation of discipleship. 
Few knew better than Frederick Douglass that the transfiguration of the human condition could not be achieved by certainty. Perhaps riffing off the mountaintop experience of Elijah, this brilliant American social reformer, abolitionist, orator, writer, and statesman, whose feast day happens to be tomorrow, had something to say about the need for the nation, whites in particular, to humble themselves under the cloud of not knowing. Rightfully disgusted by white certainty that slavery could be justified, he proclaimed in his 1852 speech, what to the slave is the 4th of July, this bit of scorching irony. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And its crime against God and man must be pro proclaimed and denounced. Douglas's words can feel like a rallying cry, and they are that. Separated by centuries, there remains much to do to continue his legacy of racial justice and healing. But here, in the context of this mountaintop transfiguration, his words are also more than that. They are a call to not know. They are a call to listen. We stand today at the edge of liturgical seasons. In just a few days, we will celebrate Ash Wednesday and move into the season of Lent. Lent is a time when people often begin a practice like abstaining from certain foods, or they take on a new one, like a discipline of prayer. The temptation, our temptation like Peter, could be to simply do something, to do what we know is culturally or religiously appropriate to do. Yet like Peter, the transfiguration invites us to attune our ears to Jesus, to dwell in God's luminous darkness, to not know what to do. In that place of silent unknowing, God has many good gifts. May we pause just long enough to receive them. Amen. Amen.